you go to like a cocktail party and there's some man or woman and they're like pretty high at some company that's done really well. And then you see their kind of grouchy spouse trailing them. You know, the spouse probably is also some postdoc or whatever from Stanford and doing something. And But everyone's just talking to the other one because they're important and, you know, doing well at a big company. Mm-hmm. So you see that a lot. You know, I mean, as a spouse, you're the closest to understanding exactly how qualified your husband or wife is. Oh, dear. In a- <laughs> Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. Okay, I've been saying that at the beginning of like 80 of these 85 episodes that I've done of Crazy Money so far. But this week, one of my most important listeners said to me, she says, Daddy, you know that part of your introduction where you say, this is Paul Ollinger, but you knew that? And I said, yes, honey. And she said, you know, after a couple of episodes, that gets old. And I'm like, oh, really? Really? Is that what nine-year-old girls think about my introduction? Huh. My feelings weren't hurt at all, I assure you. (laughs) But it was interesting feedback when your favorite woman under the age of 40 on the entire planet tells you that you're not getting it done, that it's not clever. And I'm like, but it's kind of clever. I don't know. It's not like I ever wrote it down. You know, when you start a podcast, you just turn on a microphone and start talking. I mean, you don't know what's going to come out necessarily. And that came out and I thought it was kind of funny. And it was kind of like, that's part of my smart alecky je ne sais quoi. And anybody who thinks they have a je ne sais quoi, well, maybe they say stupid stuff like, but you knew that. Anyway, don't know if I'm going to keep doing it. We'll see. Today is a great day to be alive. Hope you're having a great day. I have an excellent conversation to share with you today with Kathy Wang. She is the author of a book called Family Trust. It is a very interesting exploration. It's a novel, by the way. It's fiction. Hey, we actually talk about fiction on this here program because we're so darn high-minded. Kathy's got a very interesting story. She went to Harvard Business School, worked in technology, quit her job, and wrote this very interesting book. And I'll tell you more about that in just a moment. Before I do, I want to say thank you to the listeners I heard from this week, some of whom include the names Janice Carmina, Paul Garcia, Claire Ludvigson, and others. At least one of these people confirmed What I said last week in my introduction about the number one activity people are involved in whilst listening to crazy money is taking a walk. Hmm. What does that say about the demographics of this year's show? That we are thoughtful people who like to take walks and consider the importance of money? Sure. It also says, I don't know, maybe my first sponsor as we grow this audience and the audience is growing. Thank you, new listeners. Hello. How are you? If you want to send me a message, I'm paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Would love to hear from you. But it says, as we grow this audience, our first sponsors are going to be like, I don't know, for those shoes, those comfortable walking shoes and like relax the back. Hey, welcome to Crazy Money brought to you by the new extra lumbar support for your sciatica at relax the back. Come on in, get some special lumbar pillows and orthotics for your sciatica. I don't know. I don't know. Let's talk about Kathy Wang, shall we? I find this book, Family Trust, very interesting for a lot of reasons. As a middle-aged person who has recently lost his own father, the experience of dealing with your parents' mortality and then dealing with the logistics of an estate is certainly been relevant to my life recently. But she also bakes in a whole lot of insights into the Asian American culture. We discuss ambition, the Asian American work ethic, the nature of success. And she says some very interesting things that You know, it's funny talking about stereotypes in this day and age when you say the wrong thing and you can get canceled for stumbling across stereotypes that are offensive. 
So it was very interesting that this Asian American woman has written this book that discusses and sort of lays bare a lot of stereotypes, both positive and negative about Asian Americans and about the Asian American approach to money and work and success and things like that. She said something early that I'll go ahead and quote up front. She says, in Asian culture, you'll always feel inadequate. Wow. She went on to say, I don't think I've ever met an Asian person, no matter where they are in life, who feels that they're doing a great job. Man, that's a lot of pressure. We've always heard about tiger moms and that kind of thing. But in this book and what in this interview, she talks a lot about the pressure that goes all the way into middle age and how the sons of this dad who's dying in the book, Family Trust. Did I mention that? It's about a dying father and his second wife and the kids who were grown and they're wondering who's going to get the money, et cetera. But it also talks about their career angst and their family angst and this desire to feel successful through the eyes of others. It's really, really interesting. And by the way, you need to stick around to the end of the interview where you hear how awkward it is when I ask her to assess her own level of success. So stick around. Let me tell you a little bit more about Kathy. Kathy Wang grew up in Northern California and graduated from UC Berkeley and Harvard Business School. Harvard. After working in the technology field for four years, she quit her job and wrote her first novel, Family Trust. That's the book we're talking about today. It's the story of the Wongs, a first-generation Chinese-American family. With the father dying and the second wife waiting, the adult kids are wondering what will become of their father's estate. The book explores differences in cultural attitudes towards careers, success, money, and those kinds of stereotypes. Kathy today lives in the Bay Area with her husband and two young children. She is working on her second book, which I look forward to reading and will be out before too long. This is my conversation with Kathy Wang. Kathy Wang, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you for having me. Kathy, where did you grow up and what did your parents teach you about money? I grew up in the Bay Area in California, so I've lived here almost my entire life. My parents were very typical first-generation immigrants. They came from Taiwan My mom was really the financial driver of the house, and she taught me that you will never achieve financial security likely through your job, that you have to achieve it through equity of some sort, through the house or through the stock market. You know, I think that's a perspective of a first generation immigrant that probably will not qualify for any type of management job that has huge remuneration packages. Because they don't have the connections or the education from the institutions that the people who are hiring at those organizations would recognize? I think so. I mean, both my parents came here. They were graduate students at Stanford. So, I mean, I think they had a good educational background. Yeah, Stanford's okay. They just never. Yeah, well, I mean, I just think in that their generation, they never, ever imagined they would be part of management. The world was really different in when did they come over, like in the 60s. They just pretty much thought there was a ceiling at a certain level. And so they taught you that if you were going to make your way in this country, you needed to own something. You needed to own property. Yeah. Most Taiwanese immigrants landed in Taiwan because they fled for the communist China regime. And so it was always told to me that you needed to have something that people couldn't take away from you. And I think there's that focus amongst a lot of immigrant cultures where you want to own land or you want to own a house. That's an asset that you understand you know, you live in it and it has these four walls and you own this plot. So, and I think, you know, they're fortunate enough that in the Bay Area that works out because the values increased over time. Was there a lot of pressure to perform academically in your household? I did not actually have that pressure. So a lot of other kids did. So I did not. So my parents were really hands-off. They just kind of didn't do much. I don't know. They didn't do much. So I, 
I mean, yeah, they were just like, you do what you want to do. I was allowed to drive whenever I think I got 15 and, you know, I had no curfew. So they had gone to Stanford. So I was in legacy, right? And, you know, in my high school, like Stanford was the the end all be all. And if your parents were legacy, you were supposed to go. I mean, that was like a huge boon and I did not get in. So it was a huge problem, you know, because I mean, most Asian kids who had that like uh, their parents would have been like, you better take advantage of this. And they never did. Although they were very upset when I didn't get in ultimately. <laughs> so the end result was not to their liking. But to that point, I had almost no pressure. What kind of work did they do after Stanford? My mom was an engineer at at and and became Lucent. And mm-hmm. then my dad was like a structural engineer. He worked for like an architecture firm within the city. You bore the shame of the family by not getting into Stanford, but you managed to make it through Berkeley and went to Harvard Business School. Did you redeem yourself in the process? I feel like Asians, like Asian American parents, like they don't know what American Idol is. They don't know (laughs) what, right? Like they don't know what like Sizzler is or any of these other touch points of American culture, but they know exactly like the ranking of schools and that, you know, undergraduate is, it matters the most. Do you know what I mean? Right, like, yeah. they're like, well, you went to the business school, but you're still not, like, <laughs> they, they, like, they instinctively know that. I don't know where it comes from, but yeah. I thought I redeemed myself when I got into an Ivy League business school, but I, I guess I wouldn't if I were Chinese American, my parents would be like, ah, that doesn't count. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that the two touch points of American culture that you hit on are American Idol and Sizzler. I don't feel stereotyped yeah. at all, Kathy. Pretty, I have not. I, yeah, I, I have two young children. So I feel like my uh, reference points are very old. Like I'll probably ask like a young person. As you get older, your cultural <laughs> reference points don't get more relevant. They certainly okay. do. Okay. The other day I was like, you know, what's a young band? What's, what's a good young band out there? Like Blind Melon, maybe? Third Eye yeah, Blind? Yeah, so. What's the new Third Eye Blind CD coming out? Is that? Yeah, like, exactly. I'm I like, don't, I don't. I have no modern touch points of music, I don't feel like. Why did you want to go to business school? You know, I wonder what your answer for that would be. For me, it was I had gone to a job in finance and it just was like the natural progression. I mean, I think when you're younger, you don't even think too much. You're like, okay, well, this isn't really working out the way that I would really like it to. So I'll just go to business school. Yeah, I got out of college and I was like, this adult thing is hard. Yeah. Can I go back to school for a little while and, yeah. and figure it out? Like what I really want to do with myself. I guess I could have just kept going forward, but I got out and I wasn't making much money. And I was like, I'm broke. This sucks. How do I make more money? I think I'll go back to business school. Yeah. And I think when you and I went, it was almost like the last bastion of when it was considered kind of, kind of cool to go. You know, now people would be like, why don't you just start a company or whatever. But when we went, I think it was still kind of considered a smart choice. Yeah. I don't buy that whole Silicon Valley ethos that MBAs don't matter because if you look at who's hiring the most MBAs, it's Amazon, it's Facebook, it's Google. And yet you'll read press releases from executives at those companies that say, we don't care about MBAs. It's like, really? Why'd you hire 557 of them last year? If that's the case. Someone has to manage all those engineers. (laughs) You don't need an MBA to be a startup, but founders need MBAs to scale their companies. Anyway, this isn't about the MBA. This is about your book. So when did you start writing? I had left my job in 2015. I started writing January 1st, 2017. I was pregnant with my second child and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm not ever going to have a time again. So that was like a New Year's resolution of mine, actually, to start writing a book. Did you know what you wanted to write when you started writing? No. I mean, during the last, I don't know, 
eight years before that during like various career lulls. I'm like, maybe I was just going to write a book and I would do like a chapter and then Mm -hmm. it would collapse into nothing. And then I would not revisit it for like six months. So, and then I would start a new chapter of a new idea nothing would happen. So for this one, it was the same thing that I was like, I'm going to write a chapter. I'm going to finish it all the way through, like beginning to end of a manuscript. When did the novel that ended up being the novel Family Trust, when did that start sort of coming into focus for you? You know, I think it was just something that I always had in my head for quite a while. Not the novel itself, but actually the character Fred, who is an angry MBA. (laughs) You know, I had left my job in 2015. My husband had a job at that time where he was traveling all the time. And I just, I don't know. For me, I was not able to figure out how we would manage the childcare portion. So I left my job and it was like super depressing. That was the first huge career bump for me, you know, where you just, your career just takes a nosedive. And I was thinking a lot about how my career was not going very well. Uh, but, you know, interestingly enough, I felt like a lot of people in my business school cohort were at that point in their lives. And I felt like the men were taking it even worse than I was. So that was just something that I was constantly thinking about. I was at the park, you know, pushing my son on the swings. And so when I started to write that, Fred was the first character that I had kind of formed in my mind. Yeah. In my research, I read an interview that you did with Harvard Business School Magazine. You said, when you graduate from HBS, you feel like you have unlimited potential. A few years pass by, maybe you haven't landed where you thought you would. Then at the seven or eight year mark, you start thinking, maybe it's not going to happen for me. That's a really interesting insight. Is that what you were seeing around you at the time? Yeah, because you know when you graduate, when you go to like a whatever four year college, you graduate, right? You get recruited to a company. You're an analyst level. At the analyst level, it's pretty easy to go to associate or you know whatever that level may be. You go to business school after that. You graduate. You're recruited into a position, and you go there. And then there's a point where you realize I may not go in that upward trajectory. For me, maybe I'm just this is going to be the highest that I ever go. And it's fascinating to see where. People who have historically, I think, in all their lives had a pretty smooth upward slope, how they manage that understanding. I'll do my best to summarize it. Please correct me wherever I get it wrong. But it's the story of the Wong family. Stanley, the father, has been diagnosed with cancer. And the plot that sort of follows is, does he have an estate and where's the will? Who gets it? Does it go to the daughter, Kate, and the son, Fred, whom you just mentioned? Or does it go to his new wife, Mary? And all along, we have Linda, the ex-wife and mother of Kate and Fred, who is sort of, I would say, the one of substance in the story. She's kind of more rock solid. She spent her career at IBM. She didn't get distracted and she saved her money. Whether Stanley did or not is sort of the big question we have throughout. But what's interesting is I think you dive into the inadequacies each person feels at whatever stage of life slash career they're in, whether they're mom of two young kids with a husband working on a startup, that's Kate, whether it's Fred, who's in this middling swampy bottom of the venture capital caste system, whether it's Stanley, who is this proud Asian man at the end of his life, Mary, the new immigrant, second wife, or Linda, the proud woman who worked so long for a husband who didn't appreciate her. Each of those persons it's not just about success in the absolute. It's about whether or not people feel successful based on where they are in life. Did you have that in mind when you're creating the structure of the plot and all the characters that you bring forward? 
You know, that's a really interesting point. No one's actually asked me that or said that before. No, because I think I don't want to blame everything on Asian culture, but I think in Asian culture, you'll always feel inadequate. I don't think I've ever met an Asian person, no matter where they are in life, where they feel they're doing a great job. Why is that? I think there's always room for improvement. And I think it's considered extremely uncouth to brag outwardly. Even if inside you're like, I'm really doing great. It's really considered uncouth to do that publicly, you know, which is why probably in those business seminars where they're like, how to do business in China, they tell Americans to not go on about how awesome their company is. And that's definitely a cultural touch point. And I think even if you think that internally, just because you've been taught not to say that externally, I mean, it does probably flow back into your own interior actions and thoughts. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that out loud. <laughs> Hopefully it's not. When we talk about Asians, Asia is a very big place. It's like 90 different languages yeah. and nationalities. We're talking specifically about Chinese Americans. Do you think that is still a, is it fair to generalize across all Asians that there's more anxiety about performance and success and titles and schools and outward signs of having made it like Rolexes and things like that? And I say Rolexes because you mentioned that in the book, not because I have a stereotype of Asian people, by the way. I can definitely say for Chinese people. I think for Korean and for Japanese, it's very similar. I mean, you know, obviously China is the world's largest luxury market. You know, Japan was historically huge. You know, I had worked at Louis Vuitton when I was in college. And I remember hearing the statistic, I forget, like half of all Japanese women own a item from Louis Vuitton or something like that. So it is a cultural difference. That being said, I think in the US, specifically, you know, if you're discriminated against because of your nationality, uh, then you you feel like you have to show your success in other ways. And I think that's a reaction also to the place that they found themselves in historically in the U.S. So it's both. Mm. Let's talk about the kids, Fred and Kate. So as I mentioned, Fred works, he's a venture capitalist, but he's not a venture capitalist at a prestigious institution like Kleiner Perkins or Benchmark or Andreessen Horowitz. He's at a corporate venture capital at some large multinational corporation that sounds a lot like a Samsung, for example. He's in the venture arm of Samsung. So he's got a good job, but he doesn't have a great job. He's making like mid six figures which to a lot of people would sound like a whole lot of money in the Bay Area. It's nothing to brag about necessarily. And he's not allowed to fly business class. And these things really eat at him. What's going on with Fred? What does Fred want from life? Well, yeah, I think he makes 250000 a year in the book. And what's interesting is I had made it 400000 earlier, which uh-huh. still I think but my editor was like, you cannot do that number. It's just not relatable. Cause she lives in New York. She right, understands right. but she was like, it's just not relating to lower it. So, so I lowered it to two fifty. Yeah. Fred, he works in corporate venture capital, which doesn't offer carry. So carry is when you have like a personal stake in the deals that you invest in. Right. So mm-hmm. if you're going to invest in, let's say Uber on behalf of your firm, you have a personal stake. If it does well, your bonus is really big that year in corporate. When you're investing on behalf of like Samsung. I don't know if this is how Samsung runs their business, but you generally just get paid for salary. So that's where Fred is operating. You know, he's a Harvard MBA graduate. He has classmates that are doing very well. He feels that he should be doing very well. He doesn't understand why he's not doing very well. And so a lot of his, I think, day-to-day time is kind of obsessed with that question to why and uh, who has more than me and how do I get more? His sister, Kate, is a director at X Corp, which sounds a lot like Google, not saying it is. I'm just saying it's this hot Silicon Valley company. And she's got a husband who is working on his own thing, 
you might say he's unemployed. And there's this very interesting intramarital envy that exists between Kate and her husband that has to do with luck. Yes. Well, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that topic because there are a lot of, uh, and I feel nervous, I know you were an early employee at Facebook. I mean, there are a lot of people in the Valley. You'll meet them and not saying, I mean, I'm sure you're very exceptional, <laughs> but you'll meet them. and Very exceptional. Let's get yeah. that out there. I'm very exceptional. Very exceptional person but you'll meet them and you know, they're not like a student you never heard of this person before, but they have some enormous house and some, you know, they're not working and they're totally just kind of coasting, you know, maybe your age or younger than you. And you're like, Oh yeah, I was employee number, let's say like 650 at Google and that's it, you know? And, mm-hmm. and it's so fascinating. Cause you're like, wow, that's such a, I mean, it's skill because you landed there. Right. But there's so many startups that fail too. And there's so many people that go to those places I don't think anywhere in the world, but in the Bay Area, do you have these people side by side. The rewards for choosing the right company are, it's not like twice as much. It's like a thousand times as much, right? It's like, instead of making that $250,000 salary, which again, sounds nice until you remember that a 800 square foot teardown bungalow in San Mateo probably costs $3 million. But the reward for going to a Facebook in 2007 was like 10 times as much as going back to work at some other company, more than 10 times as much. And so, you know why I took my job at Facebook? Because they hired me and I needed a job. I didn't know what it was going to turn into. I literally told my wife, she was like, do you think this company will be something? And I said, I think this company could be as big as MySpace. I said that to her. That was <laughs> that was the huge insight I had was yeah. maybe this company will be as big as Yahoo someday. And it turned out to be, uh, you know, it created a whole new thing. And so that's what I found it very interesting how, how luck really does play a role. And everybody in Silicon Valley, if you've worked there for more than a few years, everybody's got that story of the breakfast they had with Airbnb that didn't turn yeah. into a job or the yeah. lunch meeting they had with some guy who turned into, you know, Travis from Uber or whoever, you know, like everybody's that close to having made tens of millions of dollars. And yet they're still sitting in that middling VC job that Fred's in, you know? Yeah. That's a great insight that a lot of people are just one step away. I think that's very, very true. I mean, almost everyone you talk to will have a, you're right. They'll have a story. And I think when you're that close, you can't help but think about it. Like what happened there? Cause it's not like a lottery ticket where you're like, you know, I was never in contention. It's like, I just chosen differently. It would have happened maybe. Did you see people around you at the time with one spouse who's killing it and the other spouse that's every bit as gifted, but hasn't found the golden ticket yet? Yeah, I think you do see that a lot. You do. You'll go to like a cocktail party and there's some man or woman and they're like pretty high at some company that's done really well. And then you see their kind of grouchy spouse trailing them. And, you know, the spouse probably is also some postdoc or whatever from Stanford and doing something. And, but everyone's just talking to the other one because they're important and, you know, doing well at a big company. Mm -hmm. So you see that a lot, you know, I mean, as a spouse, you're the almost the closest to understanding exactly how qualified your husband or wife is. Oh dear. In in qualifying for a certain job. Right. So I think you see that. And that's really fascinating to me. I'm an introvert, but I love kind of certain cocktail parties for that reason. When we were allowed to have parties, of course, like in the earlier times. So I'm 51 years old. So we didn't go to business school at the same time. You're much younger than I, but as I'm reading Stanley's story, right. And he's 35 or so at the time, 
something like that. Is that about right? Stanley, do you mean Fred? I'm sorry, Fred. Yeah, Fred is. Uh, yeah, Fred's the VC. He's like Forties. He's like forty. Okay, yeah. so but he's a young guy still, and you know, I'm reading it at fifty, and I'm like, what he doesn't realize, or maybe what I don't realize, is the reality of how important youth is in Silicon Valley. I've let that go, but I'm sitting there reading it as a 51 year old, and I'm like, dude, it's not about what you're doing at 40. It's about how your life works out and how do you roll into, you know, this part of your life in your fifties and sixties where you've saved enough money that you're doing what you want to do and you still feel good about the kind of work that you can, you know, go do every single day as opposed to worrying about and comparing yourself to the guys that hit home runs right out of business school or appeared to, but then fizzled out or blew themselves up, started podcasts, you know, whatever. (laughs) Does Fred need to think more about that, about longevity, as opposed to worrying about how quickly people burn bright? For sure. I mean, yes, that's an excellent point. And for sure. I mean, I think that's something that anyone who's in that kind of rat race at that age just loses sight of. You know, that being said, I think in Silicon Valley, there's a level of money where it's not like $10 million a year. Right? I don't know what that number is, but there is a certain salary level where you can be happy. You know, you can afford that yeah. house in yeah. Palo Alto. And, right. and that's quite a lot of money, actually, right? It's not like a little amount that you need to subsist here without worries, you know, at mm-hmm. a decent level. And I think that's what's occupying his mind. But what you say about it being a long game, I do think is really interesting because now that I'm more on the publishing side or on the author side, it's so interesting to me to see so many of these executives, which for me, I mean, when I was in business school, like if I had even a fraction of the career these executives had, I'd be done. I'd be like, I am happy. I've done it. I'm out. I've, <laughs> I've made my package and you know, you're not here for me again, but these guys are that, you know, they want to write books when they get older, like they want some kind of legacy. Mm-hmm. And that to me is, is just so interesting on the publishing side. Like I was reading the business case, I think behind them, um, who is Michael Ovitz? And like, it didn't do that well bestseller wise, you know, like, I don't think it was a huge success for him. And one of the reviewers was like, yeah, cause no one our age knows who Michael Ovitz is anymore. And mm-hmm. I was like, man, like this Michael Ovitz, like I thought he would be on, on a yacht somewhere like Geffen what is, yeah. you know, I didn't think he'd be at the stage in his life, like writing a biography to tell everyone who Michael Ovitz is. It's just fascinating to me that you know, you're never satisfied, I guess. Well, he also, I mean, you know, he burned so bright and then ran afoul, uh, as I recall, ran afoul of Michael Eisner, right? At mm-hmm, Disney mm-hmm. and went in to be his second in command. And then Eisner basically just big timed him and shoved him to the side. <laughs> and yeah, he had a nine figure exit package, but he was yes. basically humiliated and all his mojo got taken away by that one career move. I think he was one of the co-founders of CAA or something like that. And the biggest movie mogul in the late eighties and nineties in Hollywood or all the eighties. And then kind of in the nineties, he went to become Eisner's number two. And that move, which might've been ego-based, I don't know, like Fred wanted to be a part of something bigger, right? That he makes this ego-based move. It's his kryptonite. It removes all his superpowers. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And then now he wants to set the record straight. You know, that's, really interesting to me. Or or like I read The Economist every week and, you know, that's one of the few kind of print publications I still receive and I'll flip through it. And there's always a full page ad taken out by some business guy about his book. And the publisher's not paying for that usually. That's usually the guy who wrote the book. And I'm like, man, like this billionaire still wants to have a full page ad and like The Economist telling you to buy his book. It's just, it's fascinating to me. First, I need to make an observation. You are a published author. You're writing your second book, which has already been bought. You have a publication date. 
why are you still reading business cases and the economist? Shouldn't you just be reading whatever the hell you want to read? I love the economist. I know. I do. I mean, I don't have the ability to read the times front to cover every day. So I generally skip to the salacious headline that's interested me the most. I probably read the New York post more daily. And so if I read the economist every week, I at least feel like I have a decent understanding of like what's happening in the world. So if someone traps me in a conversation about you know, Lebanon or something, I can at least speak maybe one week behind, but I will have something to say. Before you started writing your book, you were a product manager at a place called Seagate, a technology company called Seagate. Has the way people relate to you or talk to you or react to you when you talk to them at a cocktail party, has that changed since the answer to your question, what do you do has changed radically in the past five years? Are people more interested or less interested? I think they're equally disinterested. <laughs> so like, when you say you're a product manager, they're like, okay, that's cool. Seagate is like, like that's like right, a con- right, that's like right, a total right. crash and burn. And so we make peripherals. They make peripherals. I mean, they like hard drives and make SSD. I mean, maybe the guy works on hardware. Yeah. We can have a conversation about, I don't know, whatever was interesting at the time. But same with being an author. I mean, unless the person wants to be an author. You know, sorry to malign your gender, but I do feel like when men hear it, they're like, well, it's a novel. Okay, moving on, because it's not, um, they all read Sapiens, and <laughs> uh, right? And, and, and it has nothing to do with what you wrote. So their mind goes back to the lover that's like not interesting. And then Hilarious. On. So, yeah, equally disinterested. If it's a novel, it's got to be beach reading, right? That's all it could possibly yeah. be. But what's really interesting is if you meet like a sea level, guy like those dudes like they all actually read novels right so i'm like well like you know there's something there right i used to read a ton of fiction but i think about 10 years ago my brain got rewired by mobile and social media and i find fiction much harder to read today than i did you know 15 years ago maybe it's just because i lack imagination that i used to have but i really do feel like technology has had a big impact on my ability to follow a story it does. I mean, it's changed what fiction requires too. You need to have something in the first few pages. That's why if you read a modern novel, like the first sentence, like the gunshot went there, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's like you need to capture it right away. You can't have those 10 or 20 page introductory things with huge scenery and everything. And if you were to read a book now that you had found interesting 20 years ago, would you still be able to read it? Because fiction has changed too. So I wonder if you just are not relating to like the modern fiction. I haven't read enough modern fiction to really be able to answer that question. And a lot of fiction that I've read is, I don't know. I don't know. I read a lot of books for the podcast. So unfortunately, that means I read much more nonfiction than fiction because that's just mm-hmm. when it comes to talking to people with a point of view on money, they're generally much more nonfiction in nature, which is why I was fascinated when I ran across your book that I was like, oh, what can I learn about money through the eyes of these characters? Because I think each of these characters' concerns and anxieties and aspirations is a statement on their individual's, again, gender, racial background, uh, station in life, kind of all the anxieties that each of those things brings to the surface for each of those characters. And I thought the way you did that was fascinating. Well, here's a question I have for you. So when I usually like when Asian or you know, Chinese or Indian people read my book, or actually Jewish, they're like, oh yeah, this is like a normal family. This is a very normal, mm-hmm. we understand these characters. 
sometimes I feel like quite often, actually, when white Americans read this book, they're like, these people are awful. Like, I, <laughs> I just don't, these are terrible people. And that's always been something very interesting to me because, you know, when you read these inheritance fights after the fact, like Sumner Redstone or something, I mean, right. it seems like families do care about money. Yet I do feel like the reaction a lot of times with, you know, white Americans is they find it very uncouth that people are thinking about money when someone's on a deathbed. And then I'm always confused. I'm like, do you truly believe that? Is that, are you not willing to understand that about yourself? Or am I actually a, a very bad person? I'm always, well, I, I still don't know. I've got a whole section about Asian stereotypes, questions about Asian stereotypes that come in the book. So okay. this is very much on topic, a good place to segue. I do think that in certain Asian cultures, based on my experience, I think yeah. a lot of Asian people are less worried about the appearance of politeness when it comes to things like money, that sometimes they are less concerned about asking invasive questions about one's career <laughs> or about how much money they make, what their father did or things like that. I have seen that. Now, whether or not that is consistent across all Asian Americans, I don't know. I can't say. But that's what I thought was so interesting. And it didn't seem to me that you went to great lengths to make any one of these characters likable in the sense that you didn't give them any hero moments, really. It was just you let their foibles shine through the insecurities that we've talked about that, you know, why was this money important? This money was important to Kate because she might be getting divorced and because her husband hasn't had an income for a while. It's important to Fred because he would like to establish himself as more of a secure male alpha guy in the Valley. It's important to his ex-wife because his ex-wife is actually the one who made most of the money that now might go to her successor in a second wife who's 28 years younger. I didn't feel like they were terrible people. And having just lost my father and you know working through his estate, I understand that these things can be really, really, really messy. We happen to be in a very good place with our family because the work my father did for the last 10 years of his life, getting everything in order, putting it out there in public for all the kids to say, basically, this is it. You're going to divide it by six. That's how many kids in our family. And everybody gets the same thing. There's no favors. There's nothing hidden, blah, blah, blah. There's also no second wife also. So there's no enemy in the the character. So I didn't find the characters unlikable. I just thought it was really interesting to kind of think through where each of them was coming from. Yeah. I mean, on a side note, I just, I guess I don't like the hero moment, even in movies. Like yeah. romantic comedies, I'll turn it off before the end. Like I don't care about the end when they get together. You've certainly heard the concept of save the cat, right? Where in the very first scene in any movie, there's this moment where the hero saves the cat so that we find them to be a likable, admirable person right off. <laughs> yes. And it's such a trope that it's totally identifiable, but it's hard to resist. Yeah. I mean, I guess for me, I had just recently heard that term. I guess for me, actually, I don't know if I'm like a unfeeling person, but I never even like that point in movies. If I do, it has to be like very subtle again in a Japanese movie. So they don't have that moment. Right. It's a very American thing. All right. Let's talk about some of the stereotypes you brought up. Cause as I'm reading sure. the book, I find myself thinking, can she say that? Does she know? <laughs> So, so before we dive into the examples, would you say that there are Asian American or Chinese American approaches to money that differ significantly than those from the typical Caucasian American? I mean, my husband is Caucasian, but he's like from Europe. So, but I'll always ask him questions. I'm like, would a white person do this? He's like, I don't know. Just (laughs) so, so he's not able to give me good answers either. He's like Eastern European. 
But there are differences. I mean, when you said people have asked you very blunt questions, I'm sure. I mean, if you're an early employee in Facebook, I mean, for me, probably for an old Asian auntie, like that is fair game to ask you all kinds mm-hmm. of questions. Mm-hmm. Like they want to know where you live, like, right. how right. big your house is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to them, it's like, hello, why wouldn't I ask this question? It's like, it's as if you were an Olympian. You know, they're going to ask you, you know, what, what sport you did and how fast your time was. To sure. them, it's basic demographics. <laughs> I'm not saying it's correct. No, I just think it's different. And it's in today's world, our politically correct world, even acknowledging differences is a dangerous thing to do. You know, so even bringing these things up that you wrote, I'm worried about right now, right? So I don't want to come across as the one. So I'm just going to read a couple of quotes that I found to be really interesting. Okay. Sure. So the mom is going into like a dating service and she's relieved because she's older and she doesn't want to divulge her dating history to somebody she's not comfortable with. She says she's relieved to see that the woman she's talking to is Asian because, quote, white people operated by an entirely foreign set of standards. They thought love and happiness were an individual birthright, regardless of how unrealistic one expectations. They believed they all deserved secure retirements with luxury vacations and the best medical care, no matter how many financially stupid decisions they'd made earlier in their lives. I think that's fascinating. Is that what Asian people think about white people? I don't think they think of it actively as in they're not like, oh, there's a white person. Yeah, I bet that guy thinks he like deserves a boat, even if he doesn't have a 401k. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think they think like that. But I do think they're very surprised when a white person is like, why can't I have a boat? And you're like, well, it's because you didn't save for it. You know, it's a very kind of obvious answer to, I think, an Asian person. Like, you, you know, we don't have the same social security structures, like in China. If you want like a retirement, you have to save for it. If you want a boat, you save for it. I don't think you actively are like, there's a white person, I bet they're not saving, but they might have a, a belief that they are owed something. And you're like, wow, I didn't even think that I was owed that by society. Well, or that there's a lack of financial, I'm not saying I disagree, by the way. I just, yeah. that there might be a lack of financial discipline, culturally speaking, which if you look at the numbers and look what household debt is across the population, you'd be like, well, there's a reason you could point to that. There's evidence to back that up. Now, on the other hand, she also reflects some insecurities about how she's viewed. And there's a scene in the book where she comes across a woman who is blocking traffic. Linda knew exactly how Americans saw women like the woman in the SUV, the Mercedes driver, who was an Asian woman who was blocking traffic. And that is as indistinguishable from herself, an Asian lady consumed with the creation and consumption of money who neglected to hug her children. That sounds like a projected insecurity more than it is a stereotype that I know of anyway, going back the other way. Yeah. I mean, I think it's both in the Bay Area. There are like a lot of Asian people driving really large luxury vehicles <laughs> and you right. know, they're not always the best drivers. Yeah, I can say that. I mean, they're, yeah, they're not always the best drivers and I do have freedom, I guess, cause I'm Asian, but yeah, when there's like a bad driver in front of us in like a Mercedes or a BMW, I'm always like my, telling my husband or me, I'll be like, drive around, let's see who they are. I bet they're Asian. So, right. you know, we'll, we'll go see, you know, it has actually improved a lot in the last 20 years. I've like been, you know, I've been able to witness the, the increasing assimilation of adherence to driving laws in California. But, you know, when you, I think for some of my mom's age, which Linda is, when you're walking through, I know you do think that people probably view you a certain way. Right. So also the stage of life is an important influence as to what the characters are going through. So Linda, the ex-wife, the mom of Kate and Fred, she's looking for love late in life. 
And one of the things that she wants to be sure she doesn't fall victim to are these elderly Asian men who are looking with, quote, a nurse with a purse. Yeah. And so the discussion becomes, and I just haven't gotten to this point in life yet. Uh, Hopefully I won't have to be single when I'm older, but who knows what life will bring. She's going on dates and they're comparing long-term care plans and whether or not they own funeral plots. I found that to be pretty hilarious. Okay. So I think a lot of Asian, I feel so bad just always going back to Asian people, but they buy funeral plots really early. Is that right? I mean, I think it's something that you want when you're in Asia, you want a good funeral plot, right? And you want it to be with your family mausoleum or whatever. So you buy it early. And yeah, the nurse with the purse thing, I, I actually got a lot of emails about that line and it's true, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of elderly widows with a good amount of money who are very aware of the mortality and looking for a good time. And I think there's men willing to, you know, come in and help them enjoy it. And I think that's fine. That's like a totally great dynamic if both parties are equally aware. But I just think it's an interesting dynamic to think about, which I don't think we do so often. The long-term care thing. Yeah, I do know a lot about that because, you know, I have a lot of friends now who are looking at retirement homes for their parents and the costs are enormous. And it's an interesting topic, right? Because it's the last years of your life. You probably saved a lot of money to hopefully try to live in comfort. And I mean, I think people are so afraid of death. I'm afraid of death and mortality. And you at least want to feel like you're not suffering at that point. You have everything you want. So yeah, it's just a topic that really fascinates me. The original title for the book was Men of Means. You felt like it was important for men to feel like they were a man of means Yeah. What's important to Kate? What's important to the women along those lines? So just a quick aside, it was called A Man of Means. And um, I really wanted that title. And my agent, (laughs) even before I went out to the publishing houses, said I can't do it because women are the vast consumer of novels. And they just Mm. don't want to buy a book that has man in the cover. Unless it's like man being shot by a girl, you know, or girl shoots man or something (laughs) like that. But, you know, if it says something, you know, this was true. So I had to change it. One of the last Tom Wolfe novels was called Man of... Uh, oh a God. Man in Full. A Man in Full. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll come back to Tom Wolfe in just a second. So please answer the question. I interrupted. I you. love that book and it's actually propping up my laptop right now. So oh, good. It's, well, it's about Atlanta, as you know. It's so. about Atlanta. Yeah, I learned yeah, so much yeah. from about Atlanta from that book. I'm sure it's out of date. But uh, I don't know. That's a really fascinating question. I think women want the same thing as men. Like They want to feel like... I think they want to feel like admired and loved by their family. And I think men want the same thing. It's just, I think that the levers to get that are are different than maybe women. What do you mean? I think men feel like to be admired and loved by their family and for themselves to admire and love themselves. They want to feel like they achieve something. Usually there's with some correlation to monetary success, right? Like even if you were a scientist, you want to feel like you're a good scientist. You're able to achieve some level of accomplishment, which goes hand in hand with being able to provide for your family so that your family admires you and your children admire you and respect you. I think the same goes for women. It's just they don't always correlate that with their career so closely. What do they correlate it with? I think being like a good mom, you know, like do my kids, do I do a good job? Are my kids all here taking care of me? Am I visited a lot? You know, if you go to the nursing homes or the women competing, like who's visiting me all the time? You know, like my grandkids love me. My kids love me. They're coming all the time. You know, they really love and respect me, you know, versus I think the men are more like my kids come ask me for advice. And I also think men at that age, they, from what I've seen, they are interested in like the respect of their peers, you know, which also comes from what they've accomplished. Women also want respect from their peers, but they signal that with 
how often their family visits them, what their relationship is like with them, yeah. whether or not they can go on luxury cruises and stuff. The reason I mentioned Tom Wolf, well, one of the reasons I mentioned Tom Wolf was because there was a phrase that you use to describe a type of person in your book, Peninsula MILF. Yeah. What's a Peninsula MILF? We'll assume the listener knows what a MILF is. Okay. <laughs> a Peninsula MILF is a type of woman, I think has arisen in Silicon Valley over the last probably decade or two. They live in this segment, I would say from like Hillsborough down to probably like Los Altos but they can exist anywhere. They are a wealthy woman who maybe 20 years ago, the wife of a wealthy Silicon Valley mogul would be kind of like an engineer. Like, you know, you have like two rocket scientists. And so, but now you're kind of getting the um, trophy wife. So now they're aging and, you know, they want to look good, but they're not as sophisticated as like their LA counterparts and like cosmetic procedures. (laughs) this, This weird thing, you know, where they don't fully know how to dress or do it, but they have like tons of money and they want to look good too. So they have a look and I admire the peninsula milf. So it just made (laughs) me think about Tom Wolf's phrase, social x-ray from bonfire, the vanities. He used that phrase to describe the wives of wall street masters of the universe. I forgot about that. Who were like super skinny, you know, kind of like the women you saw in the movie wall street, like the West coast 2018 equivalent was the peninsula milf. But the reason is that Kate is talking to a Peninsula MILF who may or may not become her friend. We're not sure. But one of the things they talk about is how hard it is to talk about money in a community that is Silicon Valley that is obsessed with money, absolutely obsessed and built on money. Do you have friends that you can speak frankly about money with? Only like really close ones from maybe high school, you know, because you grew up together, but no one else. No, probably not. I mean, I have friends where you gossip all the time about other people's money. <laughs> well, that's I think different. that's like a very common thing to do. But to talk about your own money, I don't think so. I mean, I don't, yeah, no. You can't even be like, oh, I'm doing this company because I want to make money, which is like absurd when you hear the business plans of some of these companies. I mean, it's clearly because you want to make money. It's fine. You can't even say that. Do people have that here? I don't know. Well, I haven't been in Silicon Valley in about almost 10 years, so I can't really say Although I did have a conversation with an old colleague, but we go back like more than 20 years about a professional opportunity that came his way. And, you know, we got into sort of like, okay, well, you're 50. What do you want from life from here on out is the difference between what you're making now and what you'd make potentially with this other new hot company. Is that worth the time it would take you away from your family? And he's at a point where he's doing fine. He's got a lot of money. It's just a matter of going from a lot to like a whole lot of money. Yeah. yeah. And so what risk are you willing to take at this point to maybe make tens of millions where you have millions or many tens of millions if you already have 10 million and more and more, I think the more I do this podcast, because the nature of this podcast is to talk frankly about money and the fact that money isn't going to solve all of our problems, even though we seem to design our lives around that theory the more I sort of talk about it, the more people kind of reach out and say, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? So maybe I'm putting myself in a position to be asked other than those conversations occurring naturally or organically. I think they should occur more. I mean, people, like you said, they equate it so closely with happiness and you want your friends to be happy, you know, but it's hard when they're saying, well, I want to take this professional opportunity because I want to do more with my life. And you're like, man, like this is like a startup that serves snacks to 
other startups. Like I don't, you know, <laughs> honest, like, right. And, and it's so weird because it's, it's probably the main reason why most people take most of the jobs that are out here. Did people tell you, caution you off of stepping off the corporate track when you went to write your novel? It's not like Facebook where it's like a rocket ship where people are like, you know, you're going to miss out on like major equity, right. equity gains. No, I think they're just like, okay, you do what you want to do. And then if you want to come back, you're probably going to have to take a huge hit in terms of what level you come back at. So that was essentially it. You're going to take a huge hit. And it's true. I mean, publishing does not pay like the value. I thought all authors were super wealthy and famous. Is that not the case? Yeah. That's why you see so many of us at the, at the Tesla dealership. That's right. That's right. Well, what are the pros and cons of working as an independently employed writer versus somebody who might not have the sexiest job in the corporate world, but it's reliable. You know, there's a paycheck coming, you got benefits. You can pretty much rely on income for the next, however long you want to work. So I do kind of cheat or I was cheating for a while. I mean, I was doing consulting with side so I can get some like more, Um, but I stopped I don't know if your listeners know this already, but I wanted to make it clear that like even like an analyst at like a Google or, you know, like the lowly person, I don't know, calculating the AdWords impact of like one random word in some dank cubicle somewhere makes as much as like a very famous writer. <laughs> like it's just, <laughs> you know, and you get health insurance and like free food, mm-hmm. right? So the remuneration is totally different. It's not even comparable. I mean, you think about like a really famous writer that you know. I mean, okay, not George Martin. He's doing really well. But someone who wins awards but doesn't have a TV show, you're doing better than them if you work in the Valley, mm-hmm. no matter what your job is. Mm-hmm. And if you're like a VP at like Google, you're doing better than possibly George Martin. <laughs> so that's my overarching statement. So the benefits, of course, of having a job in tech is like the money. You have a stable income. You can like roll in, get your 401k matched, if you kind of have like a dead end job or one of those guys who work like 30 hours a week at Google, you have a great lifestyle. You don't have to have a book come out every few years and not wonder why you're on any top 10 list. You're fine. The good thing about being a writer is, you know, you own your product, you create exactly what you have in your mind. And that is what's published out there. Right? Your name is on it and you get to see it on the shelf. I think that's the, the greatest thing. And, and it's good therapy. You know, I mean, I think when you're working and like, a Google all day long as an analyst, you're probably like accumulating all kinds of insecurities and like anger over many, many years. And then you have nowhere to put it. I think as a writer, you can put it all in your book. So you achieve a healthier mental state at some level, but maybe not because you don't have health insurance. (laughs) Yeah. I paid $25,000 a year in health insurance premiums for my family last year as an independent self-employed person. That's after tax dollars. That's brutal. That's net. Yeah, net. Yeah. You know, I was like reading about, not to go on a diversion, but you know, I was reading about this thing that all these Google employees have, which is like that way to do a mega backdoor Roth. What is that? A mega backdoor Roth. So they're able to do this thing where they like max out their 401ks, like pre-Roth. Like, so, you know, you know how the limit is like, I don't remember, like 30,000 a year or something like that Mm -hmm. if it's not Mm -hmm. Roth. And then the company converts it for them on the back end. The benefits are ridiculous. They're absurdly generous because those companies are so wildly profitable and their health is all based on getting the best people, period. And they pay out the nose. And that's why everything in the Bay Area is so crazy expensive. Yeah, yeah. So so that's, you know, you get a lot of perks if you're like not a writer. Yes. Well, and you're employed there. Yeah. So why do you do it? You know, I do like expressing creatively. I mean, it's really weird. 
it's funny because I do think about going back all the time. And when I tell tech people that, they're like, why? Why wouldn't you just do your job? Because you're like, you're creating things. They view it as like, of course you would write books. But I'm like, well, you make so much less and it's so much less secure. And they find it like very uncouth almost to say that, you mm-hmm. know, because it implies that you're, you know, you're motivated by, I don't know, being able to have health insurance, right? Like what a terrible thing. But I do like being able to write whatever I want and being able to know it's going to be on a shelf somewhere. You know, when I was at Seagate, I had like a line of products and I had products that I had been responsible for from iteration, from design, all the way to getting them on like the shelf of Best Buy. But, you know, my name was never on it. It was a company's name. So. Right. So given all those things that you just mentioned, are you successful? Am I successful? I don't think I'm successful enough for the many benefits and privileges. I think that I have been either born into or that society has given me. So I think given how fortunate I am to have the advantages that I do, I think I still owe more back to society. I really feel that way, especially after COVID, after seeing where the economic impact has landed. I mean, I truly feel that I'm not successful enough. There's so much more I think I probably owe. That sounds like a very Asian answer based on what you said at the top of the interview about Asians not feeling like they're successful enough. I was very <laughs> sad I did not hit the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> so. Yeah. Would it make any difference? The third interview or fourth interview that I did for this podcast was the guy named Turney Duff, and he wrote a book called The Buy Side. And Turney is hilarious, and his book is great. The story of a guy who lost his Wall Street career to cocaine addiction and then okay. pulled his life back together. And right as he was pulling it back together, he got this novel and then he became a New York Times bestseller. And he was like, you know what? I'm not happy. What's wrong with me? Because he realized that he kept pinning his happiness and his success, his feelings of success based on these outcomes that were outside of his control. And that he was like, I became a New York Times bestseller. I still didn't feel good about myself. And he was like, that just made me feel like such an ungrateful person. And now he lives his life based on just appreciating every day as opposed to waiting for the world to tell him that he's worthy. That's a good point. <laughs> Thank you, Turning Down, for that point. That's true. I mean, I probably wouldn't be happy even if I made the list. Well, you've got another book coming out next year. So let's see what we can do yeah. about getting that one on the New York Times bestseller list. And then you can come back and you can tell me if that made you happy. All right. Yeah. And I'll collect other Peninsula MILF anecdotes to share. That would be awesome. Kathy, where can our listeners find out more about you? By kathywang.com. But I am very inactive on social media. Not that I'm not a consumer. I lurk all the time. But I I don't really engage. A lurker. I do like the feeling of having people follow me. But I don't know why you would follow me given what I just said. But if you feel inclined to, I would love it. Because I would, and I would follow you back if you say that is from this podcast. Well, if somebody wants to see more about Kathy, it's by Kathy Wang. Kathy's with a K. The link is in the show notes. You can find out more about her book, about her upcoming book, and you can follow her on the socials. Her book is very good. I highly recommend it. And I can't wait to see what comes out with her next book next year. Kathy, thank you for taking time to be on the show. Thank you for having me. All righty. Thank you so much, Kathy. I really appreciate you doing the show. For all you listeners out there in listener land, you can find a link to Kathy's website, buykathywang.com, in the show notes. So you can find out more about her, pick up a copy of her book, if it's your kind of thing. 
let's talk about takeaways. Man, I just was sort of blown away at the end there when somebody who from all outward appearances appears to be doing very, very well in life has trouble articulating her own success. Is that a male versus female thing? I wonder would a guy have demurred or would he been like me? Like been like, heck yeah, I'm successful. Look, look, have you seen my LinkedIn resume, man? I'm a success. Look at me. I got a podcast with all these great people listening to it. I'm a success. I wonder, Mm -hmm. I wonder, I do find it interesting that some of the most successful people have such high standards for themselves that they can't appreciate the success that they've achieved in life. And I wonder if that's one of the things that keeps us from ever really being happy from being satisfied. Don't have an answer for you today, but I just found that to be very, very interesting. Secondly, second takeaway, I did find the conversation about the differences between Asian and Caucasian attitudes toward money to be relevant and interesting. These are gross stereotypes, you know, cancel me if you will. But I do think that a lot of Caucasian people, you know, Americans in general are very kind of lax about money and sort of feel that they're entitled to money more so than they are into, I will buy that thing that I want on credit and then I will pay for it, hopefully. Whereas the Asian approach is, as you heard her say, very, very different. So I thought that was different. And last takeaway is that Peninsula MILF is my new favorite term that we should all be using as often as possible. You could say it in Florida. Florida's a peninsula, but that's not what she's talking about. I hope you enjoyed that. Kathy Wang, her website again, buykathywang.com. Looking forward to reading her new book when it comes out, whenever that will be in the future. Maybe she'll come back. Hope she will. Hope you are having a great day, folks. Please take a second to rate and review Crazy Money. It means a lot in terms of the discoverability of the program. Also, if you have any thoughts, again, feedback, thoughts, suggestions for upcoming guests, shoot me a note at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Hope the rest of your day continues to go great. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.